Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, and as usual, that's about the least interesting thing you're going to hear in this conversation. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I got a call from somebody who was putting together a podcast, and they'd seen a report from the World Health Organization that the headline um, on the Daily Telegraph was Sweden's COVID death rate among the lowest in Europe despite avoiding strict lockdowns. Now, what that report was referring to was actually excess mortality during the pandemic. So I reached out to a friend of mine, a man who's been on this podcast before, David Stetson, to talk about why this may not be the, 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 the best metric uh, to assess Sweden's response to the pandemic by David uh, welcome back to the podcast one of the few guests who gets to gets to return so that'll tell the listener something about how highly <laughs> in the highest esteem I hold you but David could you just start maybe by describing um why excess mortality may not be the best indicator is it as blunt an instrument as it uh, as it appears to be right well actually one of the issues throughout this whole pandemic actually is most of our data collection is blunt instruments Okay, so when, you, when you're seeing people's reports on uh, the number of people who've, who've died from COVID-19, uh, the most common method used, um, certainly in the Nordics and Europe, is you know whether it's just looking at how many people died within 30 days of a positive test. Mm. Uh, now there's some variance there; some use 29 days and stuff like that. Now that's it's an estimate; it's not a count. Okay, so you're not actually counting how many people have died. So it's just an estimate, and you're going to you're going to get people there that um, did die from something else and not COVID, but they'll be included in the statistics. And a lot of minimizers have tried to use that fact to say, oh, they, they died with COVID, not from COVID. Mm. But you're also going to miss people who die uh, from COVID outside of that 30-day window. So you've got to understand that's just an estimate. And excess mortality is just another estimate. Um, and it can be very blunt, and there's lots of different ways of doing it. So um, that also causes confusion. Now, the most common method that's been used, and I believe that's what who used in the, in the study you mentioned, was to simply look at how many people died in the previous uh, five years on average and compare to that average to, to see what it's like this year. Mm. Now, your problem with that method is, um, first of all, what if deaths were decreasing uh, for some reason. You know, maybe a population was getting younger. Uh, maybe a population, maybe your deaths were increasing because your population was getting older. And we actually see this, if you look at the trends in uh, mortality in Sweden, it's been decreasing for about two decades. Uh, we're getting healthier and uh, with immigration, we're actually been getting a bit younger. Whereas if you look at somewhere like Germany, it's been doing the opposite mortality has actually been increasing. So if you ignore the pandemic, you would have expected deaths in Germany in 2020 and 2021 to be higher than previous years. And if you looked at Sweden, you'd expect deaths to be lower than previous years. So that's, um, and then if you compare Germany and Sweden, of course, even if nothing else had changed, it would look like Sweden was doing better and, and Germany was doing worse. 
but it's almost entirely to do with demographics. It's got nothing to do with sickness or anything else that's been going on. Mm. And, and that's one of the big issues that's happened with a lot of this, uh, this excess mortality research is they don't look at the trends. And if you do adjust for that, it makes a big difference. The second thing, and what I find particularly irritating with some of this recent stuff is, is they've included the first few months of 2020 in some of these studies. And in Sweden, for example, excess mortality was decreasing as predicted as following the trends in those first three months significantly. So our mortality, we had significant under mortality in the first three months of 2020. Mm. So if you then include that in your estimate of pandemic response uh, for 2020, you, you're, you're basically counting pre-pandemic when things were getting, were getting better and better, a few and fewer people dying. So again, you're going to underestimate the mortality caused by the pandemic. I've, um, I've actually been looking back historically to see what excess mortality has traditionally been used for. And I've never, I, I can't find any real evidence of it being used in the way we're using it now for uh, comparing pandemic responses. Um, when you're doing, it's quite common to look at say Sweden in 2018 compared to Sweden in 2020 to see, to estimate how many people may have been uh, killed from an influenza uh, epidemic, for example. Mm. But um, doing these international comparisons, is it's unusual. It, it'd be more like, whoa, they've been hit badly by the flu this year in, I don't know, Taiwan, but they haven't in Europe. But um, it's never been, oh, oh, look, Taiwan has a much better influenza policy than Europe. That's not the way it's been used before. Now, the third issue with the mortality data, um, and this is quite a significant one, is because Sweden does things a little differently. I'm sure you're surprised to hear that. <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> right. A lot of these studies have looked at weekly data. Okay. So you compare deaths in week one to deaths in week one in previous years of the um, now, that's good and fine, but the problem is Sweden loves their data to be accurate. You, you know, we spoke before about how the public health authority here has been very slow uh, bringing out data on, on COVID. It's because they prefer accuracy over speed. Hmm. Well, in Sweden, if you die and they don't know when you died, you know, you, maybe you're found dead in your apartment or something. You're coded with a date of week 99, date missing. Okay. Okay. And there's only, a, I think, two or three countries in Europe that do that. Hungary is one of the others. I forget what the other one is. And so um, if you're comparing weekly data from week one to week 52 of Sweden versus, for example, Germany, uh, you will not have all of these people with the missing date of death. Hmm. Uh, Germany just uh, estimates it and includes them there. So they're all included. And in Sweden, it turns out over the last few years, that has been thousands of people. Uh, and they're not in those comparisons at all. Hmm. Now, then on top of that, you know, have you adjusted your data for age? Have you adjusted it for obesity? You know, there's so many different things. That, that I've been complaining about use of ex excess mortality as a metric for almost two years now, because it's such a rough metric. And it can tell you, you can get almost any answer you want, depending on how you go about doing it. 
Hmm. So a not so short answer to your short question, Philip. Yeah, no, it's but it's very informative because I always had the feeling that it was a blunt instrument because we're not put simply, I suppose, we're not comparing like with like across the borders. And that probably could be said for almost any statistic to do with COVID because there wasn't a sort of a, a centralized European response, okay, or a you know global response, okay, we're going to count these things in this way. Yeah, that's right. As um, people often talk about Belgium had a very high COVID death toll. And I'm not sure what they're doing now, uh, but for most of the pandemic, they would include in their reporting of COVID deaths all suspected deaths. Okay. Um, whereas, so if they, they thought, well, maybe you died from COVID, even if you didn't have a positive test, hmm. they would be reporting that as a COVID, as a potential COVID death. So their statistics are much higher than most other countries. Yeah. Um, now, one would expect Belgium to probably be quite high anyway because of its its demographics and you know very high um, population density. But these are all things you've you've, you've got to take into account. You know, Sweden has the highest or one of the highest percentage of people who um, live alone. Yeah. So if if you get sick from COVID and you're following about the only serious advice we had here for two years, which was stay home if you're sick. Yeah. And you go home and you don't infect anybody. Uh, in Belgium, you go home, uh, you probably still living, you might be living with your grandparents. Well, in Spain, you might be living with your grandparents. You go infect your grandparents and they get sick hmm. and potentially die. So all of these issues influence it. And Sweden has, a, a, in my opinion, a large number of structural advantages when it comes to um, a pandemic like uh, COVID-19. And, and that's why you try in epidemiology to um, match your data sets who you're comparing with. And it's, it's quite obvious. Well, I've asked several times, prior to this pandemic, has any epidemiologist anywhere ever suggested the other Nordic countries are not the best comparisons for Sweden? Hmm. And, and now we're getting told, oh, you need to compare us to well, I think Tegnell actually said Belgium at one stage, which was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and at one stage, Focals of Minden had a, a map up with Liechtenstein on it as their <laughs> comparison. And I thought, this is just ridiculous. Yeah. Now, if you're looking at Sweden, you've got to compare to the other Nordics. They're the most alike on, on culture, on weather, on demographics, on population. Like health infrastructure. Health infrastructure, not even a health infrastructure, internet infrastructure. If you're telling people to work from home, mm. it matters how many people have white collar jobs and can work at home and have broadband internet. These things yeah. all matter. Uh, and they don't necessarily tell you. So if you're just looking at deaths, it doesn't necessarily tell you how good your pandemic response was. Uh, but you compare these Nordic nations, David, it's still the case that Tegnell often said, you know, don't talk to me now, talk to me in a year, talk to me in two years, talk to me in five years when all this is played out, as if the deaths in Sweden were being front loaded, but that pattern would be repeated in the other Nordic nations, particularly Norway, Denmark and Finland. But that actually hasn't happened. I think the death rate per capita in Sweden is somewhere in the region between sort of seven to ten times greater than what happened in Norway. Is that a more reliable statistical expression of what actually happened, or is that still not indicative? Is that a good comparison to make or not? Or, well, or I'll put it another way, is it a every, better comparison to make? It's a than better comparison. Mortality? That's exactly what I was going to say. You know, every every time you do any kind of data analysis comparison, there's always, there's always problems. There's always strengths and weaknesses for different doing different types of comparisons. So you can look at excess mortality, 
is one way of looking at it. You can look at the number of deaths within 30 days with a positive test, which is a method that was developed for influenza. You can, you can look at death certificates, for example. Hmm. Um, but then you've also got differences there. You know, when doing international comparisons, I think any, anybody writing a study or a paper on it really needs a co-author who is a, a resident of the country that they're including in the, in the study. So they, you know about all of these quirks. Hmm. So I'm, I'm mentioning the quirk with the Belgium data and stuff, but I, I don't know all the quirks with German, German the way that Germany and the way they do their data or even Norway and the way they do their data. Hmm. I don't know what I don't know. Uh, and there's always little differences. Week 99 here in Sweden. I've been talking about this for, for, for two years and they continue to do it. There's a um, world mortality data set that does weekly data. And a lot of people use that as their source for these excess mortality studies. Mm. And they don't have, they don't know about week 99 or don't, uh, don't mention it in their data. Mm. If you go to um, Eurostat, which is where they usually source their data from, it's mentioned, but in a kind of an obscure note in a extra file you have to read mm. that the data is not there. But uh, most people miss this. So obviously the Nordics are the most comparable to Sweden. They always have been and they remain so on virtually anything, not just health. Um, like I'm trying, what other country would you want to compare Sweden with? Like seriously, on anything. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, it, it, I should probably point out again, for those of you who are not familiar with you, you are a public health epidemiologist. You're a former university researcher. Uh, you're involved in, a, in a, health, a digital health startup. So, you know, it's not like you don't know what you're talking about. You've been an academic doing these things all your life. But I suppose the one sort of burning question, and this has been the burning question since the start of the pandemic, it's who got it right? Now, is this a case like the Simon and Garfunkel song that, you know, when we look back on the pandemic now, which is not over, but, you know, that's it's in the rearview mirror for many people. Is it a case like Simon and Garfunkel wrote that, you know, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest? Or are we at a point now where we can actually draw conclusions from what Sweden did, Finland did, Norway did, Belgium did, and say, okay, that was right, this is wrong? Or are we still somewhere in the middle of that process? I think obviously you can learn things. Um, nobody did it perfectly, obviously. Um, nobody did things wrong. Sweden did very well with the vaccine rollout, for example, mm. uh, with a focus on getting it out to the elderly very quick. And that's another issue when you're comparing, comparing pandemic responses is you need to look at pre-vaccine and post-vaccine mm. uh, because that makes a huge, huge difference to mortality data. Yeah. Um, so, you, and, you know, honestly, I think in, in the Western countries at least, uh, initially, New Zealand is the winner by a long way. Now, obviously, yes, they had some advantages as well, but what they did worked and what most of the states of Australia did worked. Um, they constantly managed to suppress the virus. It was only a political decision to start letting the virus in that, um, that changed the situation there. Uh, there's a couple of provinces in Canada that took a similar approach, and I believe they did very well. Um, I don't recall who, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but from my perspective, as anyone who follows me and knows, is that 
for me, it was always insane to let a, a novel new virus loose mm. in the population without knowing the potential effects. Yeah. And so that the very first step should always have been suppression, try to keep cases to a minimum while we, we work out what's going on. And it's very clear New Zealand, in the West at least, did pretty, very well there. But Japan's another country to look at. Yeah. What about China at the moment, David? Because we see the situation in Shanghai. I think it's over 20 million people locked down. Uh, people complaining now about they're losing wages. It's hard to source food and that kind of thing. But it's a similar suppression strategy to what we would have seen in some of those Asian countries and Australasian countries that you mentioned. Um, we The difference now is that there are vaccines available. And you know, word has it that maybe the Chinese vaccines aren't as effective as some of the Western ones. I'm not in a position to comment on that at all. But that's one of the arguments that I've heard. Is this something that... because the, the other side of this coin is that if this happens again, what do we do then? Are we at a risk now where people have gotten over it, where we go, oh, we're immortal again, we don't have to worry about these things? Or do we you know, have to learn the lessons that we've had from COVID-19? Shanghai is an interesting case study. A Chinese contact actually tells me that, that we misunderstand the Chinese COVID response. Hmm. Uh, as I said, you need local experts. And much like Australia, uh, the response is actually regional. So there's not some kind of a, a national COVID response in China. And the general response people had was as soon as you had any cases, any at all, they would lock down quickly to, to completely smash it. And that would result in lockdown for a couple of weeks. Shanghai, uh, apparently this time around, actually let it grow to several hundred cases before they did that super, super fast lockdown. Hmm. And when we talk about structural advantages and disadvantages, when you have millions of people living in apartment buildings and close contact. That's a, a very big disadvantage and is why um, China is very, very worried about letting the virus spread. Mm. And um, I, if, 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 it, if it, the Chinese vaccine doesn't work as well as uh, the mRNA vaccines from the West, uh, particularly for mortality, and um, they also were not as good at getting the population vaccinated oddly enough, uh, particularly with the elderly. So they have a big problem if the virus escapes. And if the virus uh, really spreads widely in China, the world has a big problem because it's such an important part of the world economy. I was there for the, the Beijing Winter Olympics and mm -hmm. it was incredible like how seriously they took it in terms of we flew into a terminal that was only for people dealing with the Olympics. Like, I mean, the bubble was bona fide. There was no messing around here. There was no getting out of it. There was no getting into it either, you know? But I suppose then, and even afterwards, Chinese people who had worked on the Olympics were forced to quarantine for three to four weeks afterwards before they ever got out of the bubble. So they certainly do take it seriously, even if there are differences around the place. But could I ask you, David, about your own personal experience? Because you you know after doing your best to avoid it for so long you ended up getting it and members of your family ended up getting it and it wasn't very quick to go away was it well actually i am um, i didn't do a very good job of avoiding it i got infected right at the beginning of the first wave we congratulations a, that's a proper a hipster visitor. thing to do you you had it before it was popular <laughs> yeah my um I, I actually kind of feel a little guilty i live in a small commune of about ten thousand people and uh, in wave one, we were actually the hardest hit place in Sweden and, uh, and throughout sorry, the whole pandemic, we're the second hardest. That was the first aged care outbreak was here. Mm. And I, I'm a little concerned it may have been our fault because we actually had a lot of visitors coming to us at the end of February and even in the first week of March. 
and uh, one of those visitors was actually uh, came from China. He wasn't Chinese; he'd been visiting through China. Yeah. And um, week within the week after he left, I, I started to get sick yeah. with all the all the signs of COVID, but I couldn't get tested. The whole family actually had symptoms. Some of them were symptoms we didn't even know were symptoms then, such as the the COVID toes and fingers. My youngest son had those. Everybody recovered well, but then um, it was about four or five weeks later. I'd um, I'd like not been the best for a week or two, but I'd started to get a little, get a bit more active, and I'd started jogging again once a week. And the third time through, I um, I just suddenly almost collapsed. I couldn't breathe. Uh, it was a, a very quite scary experience, mm. and I didn't really get better. Um, for nearly two years. Uh, I can now say I actually think I am healthy after nearly two years. They've discovered that I have, um, looks like permanent damage to lower esophageal sphincter, the, the muscle that blocks off your, under your throat, your esophagus to your, your stomach. Mm -hmm. And if I am basically having to take medicine every day now to control that. Uh, but otherwise I'm actually back in, in, um, in training again now uh, with karate. And you know, three months ago, I thought I never would be back again. So I'm, I'm a bit shocked by it. On the other hand, uh, we all got COVID again, January, 2021. I actually ended up in hospital that time. Um, and I was there for almost a week. But my eldest son, he was 14 then, he's now 16. He, um, mild case of COVID, uh, thought he'd recovered, but he's not been well since. He's uh in grade nine so he's struggling to try to get into into his course in high school but he's only managing to get to school one or two days a week mm. he has um severe breathing troubles he's severe exhaustion uh, he actually went off to a an event just for a meeting for a couple of hours on wednesday evening and it wiped him out so much he slept for 16 hours on thursday yeah. and it's exactly what i went through and his symptoms are a little different it took us more than a year to get anybody to take it seriously here. Uh, he missed an entire term of school. I'm incredibly angry about it, to be perfectly honest. I'm pissed off because, you know, they spoke so much about how important education is for kids and how they wanted to keep up schools open during the pandemic. And there are thousands of kids who are sick with long COVID who are not being able to go to school because of it. And they basically don't care about it. They... It took over a year before he even got a diagnosis of post-COVID, same with myself, and that was only because I demanded it. Mm -hmm. And two different doctors have told me that the um, Department of Health and Welfare, actually in a webinar, instructed doctors to use the codes sparingly. Mm -hmm. They don't want people being coded with long COVID. Uh, in the United Kingdom, they're, they're tracking this, and there's millions of people suffering from this, and it's increasing around the world. Recently, the Bank of England warned that uh, hundreds of thousands of people have not returned to work because of long COVID. And here it's not being taken seriously at all. Uh, finally, I got a, a, a list of tests from a site called um, longtidscovid.se. It's actually run by doctors here in Sweden that have long COVID themselves. Mm -hmm. And I gave that to my son's doctor and she started running through the tests. And like she did a blood test and the results came in and she rang us up immediately and said, take him to ER immediately because he's got all the signs. He's got blood clotting going on. Jesus. Um, 
he he did a thing called a six minute walk test, which is where you just walk up and down the corridor while they're measuring your oxygen saturation in your blood. It dropped within two minutes, it dropped to under 70%. Hmm. That's like an elderly person with severe heart disease. But prior to that, every single test they said, oh, he's fine, he's fine, chest for asthma, he's fine, lungs spirometry, he's fine, uh, normal CT scan, he's fine. There's no problem, there's no problem. But all of these tests, people who've been following the research in long COVID, we, we know they show you're fine. They, they don't find the problem. Yeah. What seems to be going on with uh, a large number of these people is what's called microclotting. Uh, which are very, very small blood clots, which are basically blocking the ability of the blood to get into the muscles and in some cases uh, parts of the lungs so that even if you're getting oxygen into the blood, it's not getting to where it needs to be. Mm. But uh, it's, And it's not only Sweden that's ignoring this. Most of the world is trying to pretend this problem does not exist. And, and why is that, David? Because, I mean, I'm assuming that there's, you know, there's no pill for every ill here. There's no cure as such, but it's something that obviously needs to be dealt with or researched or treatments found for it. But why would they just choose to sort of ignore it? Is it that thing that it is now in the rearview mirror? Well, my view is if you acknowledge the damage that this virus causes outside of the acute phase, uh, then you have to acknowledge that a a philosophy of basically letting everybody get infected um, is scientifically and morally bankrupt. Mm. And right now, the strategy around most of the world is the expectation that you will get COVID two or three times a year. You know, prepare. This is coming back in autumn. Yeah. Uh, I have no doubt we're going to be hit by another wave. We've got Right now, the, we have very little data now, but the only data we have in Sweden is for wastewater. It's yeah. still around. We're about the same level on wastewater detection of the virus in wastewater from sewage. We're about the same level now as we were at the same time last May. Hmm. Um, and I expect it will continue to drop through the summer like it has every summer since the pandemic started. But it's, it, it'll, it'll be back again in, in, in August and um, everyone will be surprised again. <laughs> Except for people like yourself have been sort of predicting this. I've actually been to one of those wastewater plants out in Bromma mm -hmm. here in the north side of Stockholm and filmed a bit. You know, they do, they measure... Uh, the, the presence of COVID in wastewater. And it's one of those things that are on a public health level, sort of on a macro level, they use this as an indicator. But um, you're saying that it's still around. Like, I mean, what I would be worried about there, I suppose what people would be worried about then is the possibilities of further mutations. The last major one we heard, of course, was probably Omicron. There was Delta variants before that. Is that something that, as a public health epidemiologist, would you see that as being possible? Would you see it as being probable? It certainly wouldn't be seen as being desirable, I would wager. Uh, I would see it as being definite. It's already, well, already happened. Omicron has, has split into numerous, um, well, they're calling them sub-variants. Mm. Uh, BA4 and BA5 now, I think the ECDC or the United Kingdom has already described them as variants of, um, uh, it's not variants of concern, but they're, they're worried that they're, they're different enough and bad enough that they should be given their own name. Yeah. The fact that um, BA2 wasn't given its own name, I think, was more a political decision than a, uh, an epidemiological one. So the virus continues to mutate. It will continue to mutate. Uh, there's, there's zero doubt about that. If you allow a virus to spread massively, mutations are, are simply a function of 
how many times the virus replicates. Hmm. Okay, and does it, I'm not a virologist, I can't tell you that millions of times in each person, but then every new, each person who gets it gets millions again. So, yeah. um, and if we let everybody in the world get uh, infected effectively, then you know, billions of people giving millions of opportunities to mutate, the virus will continue to improve. That's what it wants to do to survive and, and spread its genes around the world. So there's zero doubt it will do that. Where do we go from here? Because, I mean, the Western world seems to be, I, I just checked into a flight that I'm taking tomorrow morning at like eight o'clock and there was no mention of, you know, you have to do a COVID test. All that seems to be gone. I can't recall seeing, uh, I may have to wear a mask. I don't know. Uh, I'm actually being asked to wear a mask at an event. I'm going to a little bit later on today, but all of that seems to have disappeared. And of course, masks were never a big thing here in Sweden anyway. Uh, what should we be doing? What would should be we what should we be looking out for uh, in the current situation, both in Sweden and around the world? Well, I actually think one of the lessons Sweden taught the world is that um, sadly, people actually don't care that much. Um, that you can get away with letting the virus spread. You can get away with having tens of thousands of people dead, where over, depending which data set you want to look at around, over 19,000 registered dead here in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And the, the health minister was out this week saying Sweden did really well in the pandemic. That's like nearly 20,000 people. Well, right. it would be 20,000, more than 20,000 if you got everybody have died from this virus. Um, that's not doing a good job with the new virus. That's absurd. You know, yeah. we normally have a few hundred die from the flu any given year. Mm -hmm. um, but Sweden has politically taught the rest of the world that actually, if you let people get on with their lives and just kind of let it disappear in the background, people will pretend the problem isn't there. And that's where we are now. Um, now we're coming into the northern summer, which at least in Europe drops cases a lot. There are still, still seeing lots of problems. Like in Australia is going through their first winter now where they're basically living with the virus and they're having... Their healthcare is under extreme pressure. Uh, I'm seeing reports out of England that healthcare is still under extreme pressure. You know, I we're seeing all this other stuff that's going on now with monkeypox and the hepatitis outbreak in kids. Mm. And I personally have zero doubt the hepatitis outbreak is linked to COVID. Um, you know, there's there's quite a bit of research indicating that the the COVID virus damages the immune system. So it means with each subsequent infection that we're making ourselves more likely to get infected with other diseases yeah. going forward. So I think eventually we're, we're going to realise we need to control this virus, uh, but I expect it will take years. Now, they are working on better vaccines, one that work at a, a mucosal level, so they actually block the virus in your nose mm. before you actually get infected. And um, that's when things will change. But I, I honestly think that people don't care enough now. So we've, we're, we're going to live with the virus, which means we're going to live with uh, big waves every winter. I said this last winter that what we're seeing then is what we're going to see again next year mm. or this year and next year. And um, we're also going to live with uh, increasing numbers of people chronically ill with long COVID. 
does that not represent a huge burden on you know welfare societies on public health systems around the world because like okay you can say that the economy needs people to go to work it needs restaurants to be open it needs people to be able to travel but the the flip side of that then is if people are going to get infected and get very very ill they have to be looked after too so it's kind of robbing peter to pay paul is it not it's insane. It makes no sense at all. You know, even from a from a, a purely capitalist corporate perspective, sick people don't go to work and sick people don't buy stuff. <laughs> you know, it, none of it makes any sense to me and it hasn't made any sense to me for two years. Yeah. I mean, if you could do anything differently, if you were to get Anders Tegnell's job, now he's off to the World Health Organization or not, as the case may be. What he's would not you at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast right there, you know. But what would you do differently if you were handed the reins of the four Kelsum in the Hethen and Sweden, the Public Health Authority tomorrow? Now, uh, right. If I was now, right now, I would be getting um, under 12s vaccinated for a start. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Sweden is, I haven't been able to find another country in the world, I'm sure there are some, that are not vaccinating kids under 12, yeah. between 5 and 12. The vaccine's been improved a long time. The, um, the vaccine coordinator here in Sweden brought, bought a million doses to, to get kids vaccinated here. They vaccinated the extreme at risk, only a few thousand, and they literally donated almost a million doses a few weeks ago to other countries uh, with a press release saying, well, it's important to protect children, so we're donating these viruses. Well, what about Swedish kids? Mm. You know, so, so I've, got a, I've got an 11-year-old. He's at, at risk of getting COVID and long COVID. Mm. Um, that's the very first thing I would do. Secondly, I would remind people that the vaccines, the, the, the pandemic is not over, but in the summer in the north, and particularly in Europe, we have a unique opportunity. You know, even last summer, uh, many regions in Sweden, when we were still testing, cases dropped to zero or almost zero. Why not get it to zero? We could get it to zero in completely in Sweden, like no cases, easily. Mm. I'd, I'd do it as a Nordic coordination, get rid of the virus here and encourage the rest of Europe to do the same thing. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, take it easier in the, in, the, in, the, in the summer, but prepare and know that it's coming back in the winter. Obviously, people should be wearing masks indoors. Do you really need one now? Actually, probably not, If depending where you are. In crowded meetings, yes. Mm. Uh, but if I go shopping, I go to the, the big box stores when there's not many people there. Yeah. Uh, we should be getting ventilation. Uh, there are countries that are doing this. They're putting good HEPA filters in into schoolrooms. Mm. You know, we've learned so much in the last two years. The, the aerosol scientists and the physicists have come and taught public health people uh, a lot about how viruses spread. And, you know, we, we actually eliminated one of the variants of influenza. No, I'm sorry, not eliminated, eradicated. The mm. vir an influenza virus is gone from around the whole world because of the steps we took to try to stop COVID. Now, we've learned now, you can put in, um, put in HEPA filters in rooms and it gets rid of the virus, basically mm. makes it safe. We've learned that you can use a, a, a particular frequency of ultraviolet light and completely kills the virus without damaging humans. Hmm. These are all these technical solutions where we can have, where we can basically live as we were pre-pandemic and we can get rid of this virus. Hmm. You know, everyone, everyone uh, there's a lot of public health professionals on Twitter and social media and, and elsewhere that basically rubbish the idea of zero COVID, hmm. this idea that we can get rid of it. Well, we literally have vision zero for 
road traffic deaths here in Sweden, yeah. but we're never going to get rid of road traffic deaths. We have a goal to global goal to eradicate measles. That means get rid of it completely, like we did mm. with smallpox. We have a goal to eradicate rabies. We have a goal to eradicate hepatitis. Mm. You know, there are 10 to 20 different diseases where the World Health Organization has actually set goals that we are going to get rid of this disease. And that's, that's what public health has always been about, minimizing and getting rid of diseases. Mm. All of a sudden now, it's like, oh, we need to learn to live with this virus. And they're even talking now about monkeypox becoming endemic and that we'll just have to learn to live with it. This has been a dramatic change in the approach of public health, like a complete reversal in the last two years. And I don't understand it. It makes zero sense uh, scientifically. It makes zero sense from a health perspective. It makes zero sense morally. And it makes zero sense economically. It's just absurd. I don't understand it. Do you see any possibility of this changing in the near future? You know, if we do have another heavy outbreak after the the, the Nordic summer, as you mentioned, you know, do, do you ever see Sweden changing tack now that they have the World Health Organization telling them that their excess mortality is actually really good? <laughs> Sweden's not, not going to change tack, and I doubt anywhere else is, because Sweden has taught them that um, people don't care about thousands of elderly and at-risk dying. Um the only thing that might start to change stuff is, is, is the burden from long COVID becomes bigger and bigger. Mm. Yeah, but even there, it's so much hidden. I was, I was chatting to a girl a few weeks ago who saying she didn't know anybody with long COVID. Mm. Uh, ends up she lost her sense of smell um, when she got COVID eight months ago and still hasn't got it back. She has long COVID. She doesn't even know it. And yet yeah. she still says that she doesn't know anybody with it, but she has it exactly. Herself. And and you will see reports like this over and over again. People who I don't know anybody with long COVID. Well, yeah. do you know everybody you meets health history really? Yeah, <laughs> you, nobody's ever said this to you. Nobody's got it. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. So, but no, it's not going to change. What's on that on that minor note there? We'll leave it there for this time, David. It's been fascinating again to talk to you. And again, it's one of those things. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Yeah, it's just my name, uh, David Stetson. I'm not anonymous. I'm not hidden. I uh, say it as it is. I'm fortunate that I, I don't have the problem of working at a academic institution where I'll have the uh, the head of department coming down on my head for being a bit mean to somebody. I just say it as I say it. There you go. And it's well worth following you on Twitter to keep up with these things. Uh, for now, thank you once again for appearing on the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. Thanks for the offer, Philip. Yeah.